Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimphony Dronick. I'm host and producer Cody Dronick. Our show airs at 8 p.m. on the third Wednesday of every month. And if you've missed it live, you can check out our podcast at cjsw.com. On this month's episode, co-host Lynn Cadence interviews Mariana Endicott and Joanne McKegg. And later on in the program, Sharon Butala reads her short story, Grace's Garden. This is Lynn Cadence for Writer's Block on CJSW, talking to Joanne McKaig of Shelf Life Books. Hello, Joanne. How are you today? I'm great, Lynn. It's good to be here. First of all, can you tell people a little bit about Shelf Life Books? Shelf Life opened uh, 10 years ago. We just celebrated our uh, our 10th anniversary this fall. And um, we've always specialized in literary fiction. It's something that, that we're very big on. We have the best poetry selection of any independent bookstore in the city. We uh, have a lot of really interesting graphic literature. Um, we just opened a beautiful, beautiful new children's section in our store that's, uh, that's very, very colorful and inviting. And um, we have a staff member who programs uh, children's story times online, of course. And then um, we have lovely art books. We have an excellent history collection. We really love local authors. We love Canadian authors. And one thing we did a lot of before COVID was events. We were a community hub and a gathering place for the writing community in Calgary. Our location is the corner of 4th Street and 13th Avenue Southwest, shelflifebooks.ca. So how has Shelf Life fared under COVID? I'm blessed with a very, very bright and capable and creative staff. So I was amazed at how quickly they pivoted to contactless curbside pickup and delivery. So for years we've been going, gee, we've got to get our web store working. And no one ever used our web store. It was just kind of sitting there. But you know, not much happened. And when COVID hit, our web store just, it was like a sleeping giant that came to life. There were orders pouring in on our web store daily to the uh, extent that we didn't lay anyone off. We didn't have to let anyone go. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And then we uh, reopened to the public, I think it was July. And according to the Alberta regulations, I think we're allowed like 36 people or something, but we've kept that down to 10 people. We have a maximum of 10 people in the store. We're continuing to do a lot of contactless curbside pickup and free local delivery. Once you're in the store, we require uh, masks and hand sanitizer of all customers. We have those little arrows on the floor that keep people moving uh, in a specific direction so that they can stay socially distanced from each other. At the till, we've got plexiglass barriers and, uh, and the staff are all masked at all times. We've got the cash system set up so that there are no bottlenecks that people can remain socially distant from each other when they're making their purchases. And um, finally, we have a self-bagging station now. So instead of handling the books, we've set up a table out front and uh, customers can just bag their own books. And so now leading up to Christmas, what can you suggest that customers might be interested in buying from Shelf Life for the people on our gift list? Every year at Shelf Life, we, um, we prepare a holiday gift guide and we make a selection of the, the titles that we're really, really excited about. We used to organize them by genre, but now we organize them for the type of person you're buying for. So we have selections for the amateur sleuth, for the history buff. And for the past couple of years, we've even had a a list of books for the weirdest person you know. So the holiday gift guide is a really good little item to have if you're doing holiday gift shopping, for sure. For, for people who are Christmas shopping, just to remind listeners that it's, it's completely possible to do all your shopping online. You can go to our web store and you can search by genre, and you can do all your Christmas shopping with us online, make your order, and we can do a contactless curbside pickup for you, or we can do a free local delivery. If people do want to come to the store, bearing in mind that we have limited capacity, we're happy to have people in the store, and we have all our Christmas stock laid out in a very attractive and appealing way, and people are welcome to just browse. And I have to ask, what is the recommended book or books? 
for the weirdest person on your list. <laughs> <laughs> oh, honestly, I was afraid you were going to ask. Hang on, I'll just for the weirdest person you know. We've got girls against God. We've got be scared of everything horror essays. We've got a fantasy novel called A Deadly Education, and then we have a nonfiction book called The Art of the Occult, a vital source book for the modern mystic. Is that weird enough for you? That covers off lots of people. (laughs) And what are your pet selections? There's one called Braiding Sweetgrass, which is by an indigenous American botanist named Robin Wall Kimmerer. The subtitle of the book is Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. And the, the amount of interest braiding sweetgrass has generated has been really, really quite impressive with people sort of across the spectrum of readers. But one thing that has me really excited about it is that it's blurbed by Richard Powers, who is the author oh. of a novel called The Overstory, yeah. which is which to me was like it was a life-changing novel about the relationship between humans and trees. So that one's really, really high on my list. There's Reset by Ronald J. Dilbert, Dilbert, D-E-I-L-B-E-R-T. The subtitle on that one is Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. And again, this is, you know, this is a very timely book. And I think actually WordFest is featuring this author in some kind of event this month. That's a definite Christmas pick. But the one that's nearest to my heart, because I'm an independent bookseller, is a collection of essays by Jorge Carrion, and it's called Against Amazon. It's a series of essays about the love of bookshops and the physical book and reading and the experience of wandering through a bookstore and discovering things you didn't even know you wanted and uh, the importance of libraries and the physicality of reading and, uh, and so on. It's a beautiful little book. Lovely. I do have three novels I'd like to recommend. So there's a a Canadian writer who I think is really underappreciated. Her name is Carolyn Adderson. I've just finished reading A Russian Sister by Carolyn Adderson. I think it's her first historical novel, and it's the story of the sister of the playwright, the Russian playwright and a short story writer, Anton Chekhov. And it's very deftly done. It's very, very subtle. The structure of the novel almost mirrors the structure of one of Chekhov's plays. And one of the focuses of the novel is the sense that this sister, this sort of spinster sister who was kind of a handmaiden to her brilliant brother, actually had a lot to do with the invention of modern Russian theater through the plays of Anton Chekhov. So it's a It's a very multi-layered, very, very well done book by an author who really, I think, deserves a a wider readership. One that's on our uh, gift guide, actually, these last two are both on our gift guide. So, and these are both American titles. Um, I'm partway through through Transcendent Kingdom. The author is a young African-American writer named Yah Gayasi. And it's the story of a young woman who is a grad student at Stanford. And she's doing these experiments on mice about free will and desire and all those things. But she's also wrestling with her Pentecostal Christian background. So there's a, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in the book about the tension between science and religion and philosophy and psychology. It's a very, very smart and very well-paced and, and well-written book. She's a very young writer. I think she's still just in her 20s. The last one is a writer that I've loved for years, and I'm glad she's finally getting some attention. Her name is Sigrid Nunez. I read a novel of hers years ago called The Last of Her Kind, and it was one of the oddest novels I've ever read about friendships between young women. And then a couple of years ago, Nunez came out with a book called The Friend, which was a very strange little book about inheriting the dog of a friend. Then she brought out a a novel called Myths, which is a fictionalized biography of a monkey that belonged to Virginia and Leonard Wolf. <laughs> again, it's just, it's just wonderful. Very it was creative. So anyway, this this new one has gotten quite a bit of attention, and it's just called What Are You Going Through. It's on my nightstand. I haven't gotten to it yet. It's one of those books. I'm so excited about it. I'm kind of savoring it. 
you know, I'm saving it for good almost. Yes, What Are You Going Through by Sigrid Nunez is one that I'm really excited about and that people would also find in our holiday gift guide. Wonderful. That sounds like a good start for Christmas selection. Yes. Thank you for giving me your ideas. Thank you, Lynn, and happy holidays. I'm Lynn Cadence, and this is Writer's Block on CJSW. Today, I'm talking to Marina Endicott about her book, The Difference. Her novel, Good to a Fault, won the Commonwealth Rice Prize for Best Book Canada and the Caribbean, and was a finalist for the Scotiabank Giller Prize. Her next, The Little Shadows, was shortlisted for the Governor General's Award and longlisted for the Giller Prize, as was her last book, Close to Hugh. Hello, Marina. Hi, Lynn. How are you today? I'm really well in this wintry weather. (laughs) Great. So briefly, the difference is about Kay and Thea. They're half-sisters almost 20 years apart. And when their father dies, Thea returns to Nova Scotia to marry the captain of the Morning Light. Her young sister Kay will join the couple on a voyage to the other side of the world. It's 1912. They head off to the South Pacific, and a major turning point in the story happens when Thea buys a young boy from a desperately poor community to take on as a son. She buys him for a few tins of tobacco. Now, you got the idea from a story told to you by your piano teacher. What was the story she told you? She didn't tell me this story, and that's sort of important to me. Uh, I'll tell you how it happened. Of course, she she told stories all the time. My piano teacher in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, had been brought up on a clipper ship. Her stories varied a little bit, so she lived on it until she was about 18. And if you hadn't practiced the piano, the best thing to do was to get her to tell stories about onboard life. (laughs) She was a wonderful storyteller, and her whole house was full of artifacts, various things stolen or bought for a ridiculous price from from countries all over the world. And and it was um, a a museum of the plunder of the Western civilization on on the southern latitudes. She had uh, beautiful, beautiful things, a narwhal's task over the piano, just uh, extraordinary house to be sitting in and, and stuck in every Tuesday evening. My four brothers and sisters all took piano lessons, so we were there for a long time. But the story that she didn't tell me was this one about her mother. I didn't hear this story until... Uh, I was living in Cochrane, Alberta, already in the 90s. And, um, you know, it's when Google first came in and you'd Google yourself, but, you know, there'd be three entries and then you'd give up and start Googling everybody else. And I, I Googled Miss Ladd and what came up was not even a photo, but just a little icon of a speaker and her cracked, so familiar voice coming out of the computer telling a story about her mother who, on her honeymoon voyage, went to a small island north of uh, Papua New Guinea, where the natives were starving, and some people rode out to trade with them, and they had a five-year-old boy with them. And Miss Ladd's mother bought him for four pounds of tobacco because she thought he would be so sweet to have. And I was really staggered by that story, really distressed by it, because there was so little separation between me and the woman who did that. Even though there was almost 100 years in time, she was my my teacher's mother. And Mm -hmm. she did this thing, which, which is now to us, unspeakable thing that you couldn't dream of doing. But in her case, she believed, I'm sure, that she was doing an act of benevolence. So I I thought that was a, a terrible story, but also a really interesting one, and but one I wouldn't dare to write. Mm-hmm. I thought probably it wasn't really my story to tell, boy taken away from his home. But then, you know, I was lucky enough to be to win the Commonwealth Prize, and they took us all to New Zealand. And then after New Zealand, they asked if I would go on with the South African novelist, Mandlalanga, and go to um, Tonga for 10 days for teaching workshops to kids. So there I was for 10 days in Tonga with these kids who, it seemed to me, were probably exactly the sort of boy that she had taken. And as I sat there surrounded by these lovely children, I came to think that it was sort of an act of cowardice not to write it, not to look at my part of the story, how a woman could do this and think that she was doing the right thing, and how it is that so often we in the West have believed that we know best and that we were able to give somebody a better life. Right. And residential schools are an obvious connection there. So in the story, Stia had taught in a residential school in Canada, and Kay continues to have nightmares about that school. 
your great-grandfather was an Anglican priest in northern Saskatchewan and worked with Indigenous children, yes? Yeah. So you were brought up to feel good about his work and then later had to rethink that, right? Well, again, I, I believe that he believed he was doing good. Sure. And I think people, some people still think that the creation of those schools was well-intentioned. But the fact of them and the result of them is so clearly a disaster for so many people, so many peoples who lost their, their a generation lost their language and then another generation and another. So that the long-term effects of those of that act, possibly benevolent, possibly not well-intentioned, has been really devastating to, to our country because part of our country has been wounded. However, in writing about all that, I also I wanted to give the reader some pleasure as well of the travel and the glory of being at, at sea and also the love that springs up between Kay and her adopted brother. Tell me, what was the driving force, your big reason personally to write the book? And I ask this because it's a very big book. I mean, we're sailing the seas in the early 1900s. You had to learn about places, people, language across the world. A lot of research, a lot of work, sustained over a long period of time. So, So what was the driving force? I think I wanted to find out what could have made that happen initially. But then as I began to dive into the research and, and go to the places, I'm, I've been so lucky to be able to go to these remote places that most people don't ever get to go to. Tonga. Nobody goes to Tonga unless they've got a relative there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just such a wonderful place to be. I was very lucky, too, in research. One of the not even my colleague, but somebody I came to know at the University of Alberta, turned out to have done her PhD thesis there, uh, Dr. Heather Young-Leslie, who had lived in Tonga for years as a young mother. She had had her child as a one-year-old there and had sort of semi-raised her until she was about four or five and went back often. And so she was able to give me an, an in to the society there that I would never have got otherwise. And what a joy to be able to um, come to even to some slight understanding of other people, especially when the landscape is so unlike our own. Mm -hmm. Tell me a few moments that were just extraordinary moments. Seeing a whale. Heather had told me that they would come and get me in a fishing boat. And being from Nova Scotia, I sort of assumed it'd be a fishing boat, you know, but what it was was a rowboat with a little hut on it (laughs) with a motor at the back and going across from the main island of Ha'apai into ha- to, over to Ha'ano and this tiny little boat with 12 or 13 people on it and my computer clutched in my waterproof sleeve. Up beside the boat came a whale and it was so unexpected to me. I'm sure that nobody said, oh, there'll be whales because it's so part of their life that they don't think about telling you, but it was unexpected to me. And just the immensity of that beautiful, beautiful whale was really, was totally thrilling. But other things were wonderful, too. Going back to Nova Scotia on a research trip, and just because Miss Ladd had no family left, which was another reason that I felt it was permissible to try and write that story, I wouldn't be disturbing any of her family who might have worries about it. But because she had no family left, all of her effects went straight to the museum in Yarmouth. And that meant that when I went to visit the museum, it was like going to her house and going through her drawers and reading her letters. And it was lovely to reconnect with her, even though her ghost is still a pretty large, intimidating and beautiful figure in my life. Right. I remember looking at all of the necessary research in, in putting together this story. And at one point I was thinking, how, how do you respond to the advice, write what you know? And would you ever offer that advice to someone? I think what we know is peculiar. What we know is everything that is our material that comes from our past. And in that sense, Ms. Ladd is my material. (laughs) But also we write what we know and sometimes we have to come to know it. So this is why we do research is so that we come to know it. And so what I had to come to know was what it was like to live on board ship. What it was like to be 180 days out from from port with the water with a little green scum on the top. And how that different rhythm of life is maintained. And I had to learn the names of all the sails. I was lucky that I had a 12-year-old girl as one of my main characters. And, and of course, a 30-year-old woman who equally doesn't know anything about the sea to cover my errors. So if, if a sailor reads it, <laughs> uh, I can say, well, yeah, but Kate didn't know what that sail was called. 
Right. I uh, read somewhere that your father was an Anglican priest before becoming a psychologist and then a lawyer. Is that true? That's right. Wow. So how much of an effect has he had on your values, your literary choices? Oh, an enormous amount, of course. We... I think both for the fact of his priesthood, but also for his questioning the church and leaving it a couple of times. He did, uh, in fact, never stop being priest. And he went back uh, and was um, an honorary assistant, a priest who preached and did services without pastoral duties at the cathedral in Toronto for 30 years. But I think that his openness to the world and his uh, continual questioning of what it means to be a faithful person and what it means to be a Christian was useful to me in allowing me to question everything, you know, to to not have a a sort of a doctrinal mindset, but to be able to wonder about things and wonder if this is actually right. And what about your mother? Who is she? What, What was her influence? She was also from Saskatchewan and her influence she was from Capel. Her family was from there. And so her grandfather is the one who who was the uh, priest in northern Saskatchewan. And so her stories of him and her reverence for his for what he had done with his life was also very formative. And I, I, I don't take issue with him. I think that within the time that we live in, it's very difficult to see outside of the ideas that are prevalent. And so that's another part of the research for this book was reading within the time, reading religious philosophy and, you know, what people were able to think at that time. And so although I began the book intending to only have Thea as the main character, what I found as I went on was that I missed someone who did not, who had not already bought into the program. And that's where Kay was so helpful to me, both as um, a difficult, crabby, tortured in a sort of way, you know, unhappy child who looked back on the residential school with terror and with fear and with sorrow for her friends, but also someone who had not fully bought the whole doctrine and was able to look at things slightly differently, maybe could look with what I would consider to be more clear eyes. What do you think constitutes great literature? When I think about that question, an answer or a response from my friend, the prairie writer Connie Galt, always comes to mind, where she talked about moving from writing plays to writing fiction and was always trying to write as well as possible. But she said that she'd come to believe that it's the quality of the imagining that makes writing good, great. It's not the mechanics or the facility with prose necessarily, but it's the quality of imagining the lives of other people and setting them into a book that that distinguishes really great writing. One of the habit skills that I think great writers have, and you seem to have a wealth of, is keen observation, noticing the differences in the texture of the sky, how light falls in any moment, movement of water, wildlife, insects, human behavior. So I'm curious, what is it that you observe most easily and naturally? And are there some things you have to encourage yourself, be aware of, to try to be more cognizant of for the sake of your writing? There are things I have to try to be aware of for the sake of ordinary life and getting along with people. I can be kind of oblivious sometimes to other people in real life Mm -hmm. um, because I'm often in the sort of dream of fiction. So I have to be careful to be present with my family. And with, you know, to be careful of other people's feelings and opinions in real life. In in writing, uh, I think it's such an interesting question. I think the thing that comes most naturally to me, actually, is ob- ob- observance of the natural world, of, mm-hmm. you know, the senses. So the smell of the air and the, the particular, maybe sometimes almost undefinable flavor of spring in Nova Scotia that half rot, half growth kind of feeling. So the physical world, I think I observe just as a matter of breathing. Right. And another part that comes into that would be music. So you play piano and harp and you say that you use music a lot in your work and while working. If you were to put together a playlist for the difference, what would be on it? I wish I was at my desk because, of course, I did have a playlist for the difference. And and, uh, (laughs) 
I'm now so far into the new book that I can't remember what was on it. Funny what is on it, and I know many, many writers do this because we all have music at our fingertips now. Mm-hmm. But it's quite often, you know, somebody, there's character music. So the music might not at all be in period. It might be, you know, techno pop for one character who's got a very quick temper and a quick rhythm. Um, or it might be, I used uh, The Swan of Tualema from Sibelius for Thea. Of a gliding motion and a orderly mind. For Kay, I had many, many different <laughs> songs depending on my particular mood that day and her particular nightmare. It's quite a good exercise for me finding which music I think conveys the character or puts me into the mindset of the character. So I, I like to do that. So what's life like for you these days under COVID? What does a usual day look like? How's it different? How are you and your family coping? My family and I moved to Saskatoon the day that COVID, March 15th, the day of the lockdown. I still teach at University of Alberta, so I still have an apartment that I share with my son in Edmonton. And I'm back and the intention was that I would be there all through the school year, back and forth. But of course, since March, the university has been on all online. And so I haven't been traveling back and forth. And I'm really missing my friends and my just my ordinary, you know, the Italian center and uh, knowing where to go to get this particular bit of seafood. I just miss Edmonton for all of the knowledge that I have there, which I don't have in Saskatoon and, of course, can't get because you can't go anywhere now. But we're mm-hmm. here to help look after his parents, my husband's parents, and which is a great thing to do. And we're very happy to be doing it. But it's a weird time. But um, through the bounty of fate, my daughter graduated in June. Very disappointing graduation from Ontario College of Art. Nothing was done. No online graduation, nothing. And then she came home. So we've got her with us, which is a great treat. So I'm not really alone. Unlike some people, and I, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be holed up alone. I would find it very difficult. Do you have any particular coping strategies? Have you done anything different? I'll tell you one thing I've found, especially in the summer, and maybe this was partly because of the move, which was, you know, sort of made much more difficult by COVID. But I find that I've got one thing in me a day. It's very difficult to make myself do two things or goodness knows eight things as I used to do. So I'm trying to be good to myself about that and to accept that, okay, if I did groceries this morning, I'm probably not going to be much use this afternoon in writing. So my strategy is to hibernate through it. And be kind to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. The holidays are fast approaching and gift buying is well underway. What do you suggest for books to buy as gifts or for ourselves? I love doing book suggestions. We were talking about residential schools earlier, and there are, of course, many fantastic books about residential schools. But the one that I recommend most often and that I've bought for presents myself most often is Policy Sequasis's beautiful, beautiful book of photographs called Blanket Toss Under Midnight Sun. That is such a window into Indigenous lives in Canada that we don't get to see very much because most of the time in the news it's, you know, there's no water and the conditions are dreadful. But here we get to see in beautiful photos that Paul has spent years and years finding in archives, beautiful photographs of Indigenous lives in the North and in Saskatchewan and all across the West. That is a really fantastic gift for anybody. Tanya Talaga has a new book out called Seven Truths that I think is probably an excellent. Her first, uh, her other big book, Seven Fallen Feathers, is about Indigenous youth in Thunder Bay. And this one is uh, about her own teacher, her own elder and mentor. And she also has a podcast out by the same name. Yeah, and it's wonderful too. (laughs) And then, you know, for Christmas, it's nice to have enjoyable books that are not giving you any kind of stress at all. And Sherry Demoline and Eden Robinson both have books that are just complete adventures and wonderful to read. No medicine involved in that, no teaching. But also my good friend Jill Adamson's book, The Ridge Runner, just won the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Award, and it is such a good book. It's so good. It's set in Banff, and it is the sequel to uh, her wonderful book, The Outlander, which many people will have read. And it's about Mary from The Outlander, her son. Wonderful. Thank you so much for talking to me today and providing a little more insight into the difference. Thank you. Sharon Butala is an award-winning author of 19 books, numerous articles and essays, poetry, and five published plays. 
She has three times been a finalist for the Governor General's Literary Award, Butella is a recipient of the Mariana Engel Award, the Saskatchewan Order of Merit, the 2012 Cheryl and Henry Kloppenberg Award for Literary Excellence, and the City of Calgary W.O. Mitchell Book Prize. In 2002, she became an officer of the Order of Canada. She lives in Calgary, Alberta. Sharon Batella, welcome to CJSW. Uh, thank you. I'm going to read my story, Grace's Garden, from A Season of Fury and Wonder. As Grace advanced through the hallway's gloom, she could see a man pressing his face against the lead-seamed-stained glass beside the front door. When he saw her, he dropped the hand he had been cupping beside his eye and stepped back. Clearly, she thought Stephen had warned him she might not answer the door, although she was always at home. No use, she would have to let him in. Hi, Mrs. Mercer. He offered a cautious smile. I'm Everett Gower, pastor at the Plains of Hope Church. I know who you are, she told him briskly, although the croak in her voice made her sound a good deal more uncertain than she had intended. She stood back to let him pass into the hall, but as he was halfway through, lost her grip on the heavy oak door so that it hit him on the shoulder and upper arm. So sorry, she said, although of course she wasn't. She saw no reason to put up with his visit except that here she was putting up with it. The kitchen where she took him had once been filled with sunlight when the children were little and Reuben was alive. Now the dying elms crowded out most of the light and the tall stalks of tinker blue hollyhocks that used to nod and wink at her above the window sills. Her father had planted them when she was a child, had, without good light, long ago died out. Puzzled, she noticed that his eyes had widened, turned in the direction of his gaze, and saw that a burner on the gas stove was blazing away. I turned that on to make tea just as I heard you ring at the door, she said, trying not to sound defensive. In fact, she had no memory of turning it on, but if she couldn't explain that flame burning away without even a kettle on it, Stephen would have the city on her in a minute and would force her into signing that damn power of attorney and she'd be finished. Hurriedly, which she recognized was actually gracefully slowly, she pulled the kettle. Thank God it was full, although who had filled it? And when? Over the flame. She now kept a few utensils and dishes, a plate, a bowl, two cups, a water glass. She used all the time on the counter within easy reach. She carried the pair of saucerless cups to the table where Pastor What's-His-Name was sitting with a hint of tension in his shoulders and a self-righteous smile on his mouth. His eyes were tiny, light blue and hard, his pupils so contracted they had virtually disappeared. Where the hell had the teapot gone? But she gritted her teeth and took it from the pastor who had found it on the table behind the pile of books and greasy art magazines, carried it to the counter, dropped in a tea bag, and poured the not-yet-boiling water in. She could feel the assault of his grimace behind her. When she turned with the full pot, he leaped up, took it from her, and filled both teacups, not waiting for any semblance of steeping. Clearly, he was as eager as she was to get this whatever it was, over with. Stephen sent you. Stephen probably made a fair-sized donation to the church. He's a good son. He's concerned about you. He glanced around the room and up at the cobwebs in the corners where the dark bean ceiling met the crumbling once white plaster walls, then over to the stove and without speaking, at the same moment as she realized that again... She hadn't turned off the burner. He jumped up in two strides, was at the stove, cut the flame, and was back at the table again, fixing on her once more, comically, that hyper-intense, pale blue gaze of his. What a bore you are, she said, though pleasantly. He said you would be angry. He wants my property. He wants me to sign a power of attorney. How Christian is that? The pastor's left cheek did a minute, quick dance. She could feel him wanting to draw back. Good. He wants your well-being, as we all do, he responded, although he did say you would say that, even though that you believe that. Do you know what this place is worth, if not the house, at least this large lot in this truly refined and elegant area? She could hear herself hissing. 
She didn't believe herself that this was all that Stephen wanted, but it seemed easier to defend herself with the claim. I'm told a couple of million. There, case closed. She managed to push her chair back an inch or two enough that she could get herself to a standing position without falling or taking the hand he proffered. I don't like you, she told him. I think it is diabolical of you to come here and try to coerce an old woman into doing something so profound, so inalterable, that she does not want to do purely for your own reasons. Her word choice delighted her, as mostly she couldn't think of words when she wanted them. She knew what they were, but slippery fish they swam cunningly just beyond her grasp. I will stay here. I will die here in my own house where I was, she was about to say born, but she hadn't been born here. But then who would remember that? It was nearly a hundred years ago, and she could say anything she damn well pleased. Born, she said where I gave birth to my three children, also not true, where I was married, sort of true, and only with her second husband. The reception had been in the back garden when it was splendid with flowers. Where my mother died, true, and where I lived my whole life, except for her years in art school in the east of the country and the few she spent in New York and the five or so when she had lived in Europe with her first husband, Piers. And then there were those years... After a heart attack, felled her second husband, Reuben, her children's father, when she had had to go out to schools across the country to teach and earn some money, her own practice as an artist having made her not a penny until lately, stuff she had done as a young woman mostly, when she no longer cared about money and didn't need it anyway except to pay the taxes on this monstrous abode of hers, she must not ever forget to pay the taxes. I want you to leave now. His expression didn't change. He simply stood as if he'd been planning to all along for a brief second rested one hand lightly on her shoulder, walked out of the room and down the hall. She struggled to her feet again and followed him, bumping against the wall. She had a tendency these days to wander a bit to the right when it wasn't to the left. At the door, he said, you phone me if you need anything. The church is here to help, and Stephen and your daughters have your best interests at heart. They are not trying to steal from you or to mistreat you. They want you to be comfortable and safe in your last years. A power of attorney, but she managed to get the door shut on the rest of his sentence, then pulled back the filthy... Even she recognized that the damn thing was filthy. Sheer curtain that covered the narrow window beside the door with its beveled and stained glass, for which a collector had offered her a small fortune not so long ago, and watched Reverend Gower trot down the front steps and then the path to the gate, which he opened carefully and shut with even more care, then round his car, pausing at the driver's door to look up to the front of her house, where she stood gazing out at him, then got in and drove away. She hoped he had seen the finger. She went back to the kitchen, the single room in which she now lived, to the darkest corner closest to the sofa that was now her bed, where, on the counter in plain view, except for the shadows, she kept her scotch. Somewhere there should be a glass. She found it in the sink, rinsed it vaguely, and poured in a good dollop and sat on the sofa with it. The next thing she knew, her middle daughter Karen was standing in the kitchen, staring straight at her with an expression of mild horror, while a second woman, a stranger in professional dress, navy jacket, white blouse, tailored tan slacks, stood beside Karen, gazing around with undisguised interest at Grace's arrangements. Who is she? Grace demanded, although she knew perfectly well, social worker, probably the Mrs. Crowley on whom she had hung up at least three times and for whom she had twice refused to open the door. Go away, both of you, right now. This tone had subdued her children, even as late as into their teens. When neither woman moved, she cast about for some other weapon in her sadly shrunken arsenal. Don't answer the door, don't answer the phone, scream louder at people than they are screaming at you, cut them dead with your scintillating wit. Recite your rights, then recite them again. She could see that she was moving toward the end of possibilities. She would not budge. She would not. 
Mother, where are your manners? Take Mrs. Crowley into the front room while I do a little tidy, while I make some tea. I loathe tea, Grace said. Would you like a drink, she asked Mrs. Crowley, but the scotch bottle seemed to have disappeared. Mrs. Crowley bestirred herself. I think it is time we had at least a conversation, she said. For once, Grace didn't detect unctuousness or the superciliousness that she had long ago discovered was the voice used mostly to address the old. The old is stubborn, offensive in their very existence, newly stupid, ineffective, and always helpless, too close to death to be bothered with except as packages to be bathed and humped around in wheelchairs. At just what point did I stop being a human being, she inquired. Karen said quickly, Mother, no one said... Grace had managed to get to her feet, Karen apparently not having noticed what she was trying to do, and therefore not helping, and Mrs. Crowley watching her again with that expression of mutual interest, as if they were not two people standing a few feet apart in the same room, but that Grace was only a bloody, what was that, um, hologram, as if Grace was only an electronic projection of her former self. Have you been smoking again, Karen asked, trying but failing to sound neutral as Mrs. Crowley seemed to do with such ease. I never stopped, Grace said. She was moving past the two women toward the door into the hall. She found that, although she was fuming, as she always did, at being told what to do by people less than half her age, she was curious to see what her front parlor looked like these days. It had been months since she had last seen it, she felt as though she were visiting childhood friends, filled with curiosity to see what time had done to them, but hugely disappointed to discover they were still the same bloody people. Somebody had covered the furniture with old sheets. She tried to throw off the one covering the brocade love seat, but lost her balance and would have fallen if Mrs. Crowley, please call me Tony, hadn't caught her. Never mind, let's just sit, Mrs. Crowley said. The woman plunked herself down on the sheet-covered parlor chair across from Grace, set her overly large purse on the rug, opened it, and pulled out some sort of electronic gizmo, an electronic notebook, it would seem, as she began to write in it. Although Grace's hearing wasn't at all good, she could hear crashes and bangs coming from the kitchen and the clashing and ding of pots. This meant that Karen was furious, at the mess and was letting her know. She wants me to move immediately into a nursing home, um, an assisted living place, whatever that is. Mrs. Crowley said, oh, I expect you know perfectly well what it is. She smiled at Grace as if her tactics were amusing. I deal exclusively with the old, and while all the usual applies, I find it kind of fun to watch you all use the same dodges when it suits you. I'm old. You can't expect me to know that. I'm old. You do it. Here she tones. Just because I'm old doesn't mean I can't look after myself. In spite of herself, Grace laughed. Well, you can hardly blame us, she said. We have so few options left. You still have your brain. Of course I do. Although my children think I'm far gone into senility. Children often confuse perceptual difficulties and the new slowness of mental organization for a damaged brain. Also, any sense one maintains of one's right to autonomy, Grace huffed this out furiously. They do want you to move, and I am pretty convinced now that I've met all three of them that they really do have your welfare at heart. They really do not believe you to be capable any longer of taking care of yourself, and they are truly afraid for you. I notice you didn't say they love you. Don't you believe they do? Actually, no. They used to. But that dwindled and died as the years of my recalcitrance extended themselves until you find me as I am now just a bloody old nuisance and they are bound by now worthless family ties to keep an eye on me. This does not include carrying out what I want. That's a harsh judgment on your own children. They cannot even begin to imagine themselves old 
Grace said, and heard the querulousness in her own voice, heard even the edge of despair, which served only to further infuriate her. They believe that when their time comes, they will manage things much better, Mrs. Crowley suggested, that they will never find themselves in this position. What do you mean, alive and with a will? When she gets finished in there, I won't be able to find a damn thing, she said, gesturing toward the kitchen. I need a cigarette. And that's another thing. They think you will burn the house down with yourself in it. And still, I want a cigarette. Grace fumbled around in the pocket of the apron she seemed inexplicably to be wearing, and lo and behold, found a squashed pack of cigarettes and a small box of matches. It was like magic, and she held them up to show Mrs. Crowley, who leaned forward to help her light a match and held it to the end of the cigarette as Grace puffed on it. You want me to agree to leave. In lieu of that, to agree to a home care worker coming in each day to make sure you are safe and have had a hot meal. Or Meals on Wheels could come every day. Maybe that would be better. But first and foremost, why do you refuse to move to a safer, warmer, more comfortable place? I can't believe you were even asking me that question. I was born here and have lived here almost all my life. Her cigarette seemed to have gone out, in fact had disappeared, but there was a scattering of ash (coughs) on her apron's lap. No, Mrs. Crowley said, that's a fiction, although you have lived here many, many years, even when you were a child. But frankly, between you and me, I don't quite believe that's what the obsessiveness is all about. Grace studied her carefully. I had certainly never imagined that you might be interesting. Are you afraid of dying? Of course. But then also, not a bit. I mean, are you afraid that if you move, you'll die? There's no question about that. Is it, I think I'm getting it, is it just that old question of making your own decisions about your own life? Wow, Grace said, I bet you went to graduate school. There was a silence, a thin stream of smoke from a newly materialized ashtray curled upward beside Mrs. Crowley's elbow. Hmm. So that's what had happened to her cigarette. She considered lighting a second one just to show that she could, but it seemed too much trouble. And also they want me, Stephen especially, to sign a power of attorney document so he can sell this place out from under me and force me into moving. He will have to go to court to get that from you if you refuse to give it, Mrs. Crowley said. She sighed. He needs lawyers and doctors to certify your inability to look after yourself. She let her voice trail away. He will do it, you know. I suspect the very fact of your extreme age will guarantee his success. He has been holding off in hope that you will consent on your own to a move and a sale, Grace said. I wish for a drink. I need a drink. Not wise, under the circumstances, Mrs. Crowley said. I hurt all over, Grace said, that querulous note returning to her voice. But it was true. They'll give me strong drugs for the aches and pains, but I can't have a goddamn drink. What's the matter with them? Do they think my heart might stop? She had been yelling. She knew this because there was Karen standing in the door carrying a tray with a teapot and teacups on it. Mom, she said, please. It's all right, Karen, the social worker said. We're doing fine. Grace wanted to tell them to both get out right now, but her mouth was suddenly parched for tea, so she held back the stream of invective she had been hoarding. There is also the route of getting the house condemned, Mrs. Crowley was saying, city inspectors and all that. But just as her daughter set down the tray on the small table between them, Grace realized her apron was on fire. And already the social worker was pushing past Karen, nearly knocking her over, and had grabbed at the apron, tearing it off Grace, rolling it into a ball and stomping on it. You see, Karen shouted, Mother! Do you see? Having tidied the parlor, taken away the tea things, and seen her settled with a small salad and a chicken sandwich on white bread at her kitchen table, Karen said, Susan will come by in the morning on her way to work 
She'll get you a hot breakfast. Grace's heart sped up, pattering away lightly low in her throat. And Mrs. Crowley and I are getting in a home care worker to give you a bath. She held up a hand, shoulder high, palm first. Mother, you smell of urine. A bath and clean clothes. Just how do you propose I get upstairs to the bathroom, Grace asked. She used the toilet off the kitchen and, as far as she could remember, bathed in the kitchen sink. She will bathe you down here in the kitchen where it is warm. I've bought some clean clothes for you. Not waiting for her to wind herself up to a rage again, her daughter and the social worker said a cheery, See you soon, and were gone. She was amazed to find herself hungry. The sandwich was delicious, and she savored every bite, although it was, of course, too much food for her. Then she lay down on the sofa, wedged into the corner of the room, and on which years before the family dog and occasional cat usually slept. There she fell asleep. She must have been dreaming, because a voice had been shouting in her ear, "'Watch out! Pay attention!' She opened her eyes and saw that the room had darkened. It was twilight. She must have slept all afternoon. Now, sitting up, she clicked on the standing lamp and studied the room in which she found herself. Still the kitchen, no flame burning on the stove, no smoke rising from anywhere that she could see, no tap gushing water, and on the table only one pretty little mouse chewing away at the remains of her sandwich. She could see Reuben sitting across the room from her in the shadows in the corner where there remained an old wooden kitchen chair that she had once used to stand on when she needed to reach things high in the cupboard. She couldn't quite make out his face, but it was her second husband, all right, wearing his baggy, dirt-smudged denim pants that he used when he was gardening and his faded plaid flannel shirt over a worn-out blue dress shirt. She had always liked him best in that outfit for some reason, so masculine, so earthy or something. What do you want, she inquired, as if she were annoyed by his constant neediness. The rhododendrons need cutting, he said, and somebody should fertilize those rose bushes. Those bushes are dead, she said, and then maybe a trifle plaintively, aren't they? The chair creaked as he stood. Now she could see his face, how lined it was, how cheerful his expression. My girl, he said tenderly. They both laughed. Then he was gone. Once she had seen a bird that way, some bird she didn't recognize, in fact doubted even existed so strange it was, and when she glanced down for an instant to see where her feet were, the bird had vanished, just as Reuben had vanished. But both had left behind the same absence. Not as when things weren't just where you thought they were, your car keys, your glass of gin, your hairbrush, but when the absence itself became a thing. Very well, the bird, the man, both had come from another reality, and when they had gone back to it, the space between the two realities didn't close right away. You could still see it. How wonderful that was. What unexpected, vast hope that gave her. But, oh dear, Grace thought, something is definitely up. A voice inside her head said, They will now turn off your gas and electricity and your water. They will say it is because your house is unsafe. They will take you out when the wrecking crew arrives. There was no bloody way she was leaving until they hauled her out as the house came down around her. At this, it occurred to her that her mother, exquisitely brought up as she was, would be angry with her for making a spectacle of herself, for giving up her dignity. Stephen, she knew it, would be along soon, probably as soon as she was bathed and in clean clothes. He would bring that lawyer again. He would bring documents for her to sign, and if she refused, and they all knew she would, he would return with the lawyer again and the two medical doctors, and they would take everything away from her. I am clinging to my very soul right now, she cried, raising a fist and looking up to the dingy ceiling where cobwebs hung down and dead flies stuck 
to years-old flypaper turned in the golden light from the lamp. How beautiful they were. Transparent columns of light, her ceiling a glinting, shimmering, speckled garden. I am clinging to my very soul, whispered this time. Mother, Stephen had said patiently to her, you cannot fall again. Your bones are too fragile. If you fall again, you will. You bring death with you, she said. He had begun to cry. I have come to this, she thought. I have made my children cry. I have made my son cry. It was very dark outside now, probably past midnight, and the dawn would bring her end. That was what Reuben's visit was all about. It was to tell her she had reached the end of choice. She could feel her heart squeezing and releasing in her chest. Was it her imagination, or was it weaker and slower than usual? Well, why not, she asked herself. I'll soon be 100 years. By using the chair on one side of her knees and the thin wooden column of the lamp on the other, she managed to stand. The back of her skirt felt warm, and she recognized that she had wet herself. She would not allow herself to think again. She was so very stiff from lying down all afternoon, but by pulling herself along from piece of furniture to piece of furniture, she made it to the sink where she grasped and held on to, thinking she would perhaps boil the kettle again and make herself a nice hot cup of tea. But Reuben had returned, not that she could see him, but she could feel him around her, warm and loving as he had usually been, or was it his best. Scrabbling about on the counter, she found the stack of magazines that Karen must have forgotten to take with her. She pulled the stack toward her, fumbled in her pocket, and when she found what she wanted, knocked the magazine on top of the file over toward the sink. It fell, half in and half out, spreading its pages awkwardly. She pulled two pages off, the ones that had refused to lie down neatly, and with her other hand opened her package of matches and extracted one. This, she saw at once, would fail. She would only fall down or do some other such stupid thing of the kind she had found herself doing over and over again the last few months. Or was it years? But somehow or other the burner was on, the blue and yellow flames warming her and lighting up even the dark corner where previously Reuben had sat. She sighed, gazing into the darkness out the window one more time, although she could see only the wrinkled visage of the very old woman, and then put the magazine's pages to the fire. When they caught and flamed high in her hand, she managed to reach up and over to the grimy curtains that framed the window, pushed the flame toward them, and waited. In a moment, the cheery red and orange flames had chased each other up the cloth, and now the bent and stained ceiling panels were beginning to smoke. Satisfied, she found the bottle of scotch. How had it gotten there? Poured herself a drink, and sat down on her sofa to savor it, while black smoke began to roll down from the ceiling, and the fire grew, all the while noisier and noisier, whistling and crackling and whooshing in a satisfying way. You have been listening to Writer's Block here on CJSW. This is co-host Cody Dronick wishing everyone a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.